Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. to another episode of Movie House Memories, the podcast where we look back and review the films that we think are the most important films in cinema history. I am Patrick, and with me this week are two people who spent a large portion of their lives in darkened movie theaters. First, he's our resident lumberjack and the man who sees symbolism in his cornflakes and always believes, if you build it, people will come. He's one of the co-hosts of the Criterion Critics and Lunchtime Movie Review podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network, Bobby Taylor. Since we are podcasting, they will come. <laughs> also with us, uh, she has appeared as one of the co-hosts of both the Sunday Seconds with the Duke, the John Wayne Retrospective podca- podcast, as well as the Golden Age of the Silver Screen podcast here on the MHM Podcast Network, the sole female voice of the show and my podcast better half, Lori Flores. Hello, I'm here going the distance. <laughs> All right. I love how everybody takes just one single line from the film that just spins it off. It's quotable. Yeah. You didn't, nobody wanted to ease my pain. I mean, seriously, no one wanted to go there. So no one can. No, okay. That's true. Right. Shane's not here to tell us it's too late in, down there, yeah. down under. Right. Too early. Tell me, tell me to sell the farm, you know, just sell it. But all right. Welcome, everyone. And before we get started, we'd like to thank all the returning listeners to the show and welcome all new listeners to Movie House Memories. Thanks for downloading us and giving us a try. We appreciate your time and attention and keep hope you keep on listening and following us on Pinterest or Twitter at MHMemories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourselves informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Additionally, you can now subscribe to our account on YouTube, where we're releasing our podcasts exclusively. Once there, you can give us a like or dislike. And if you subscribe to our account and ring the notifications bell, you can get updates on when we post new material. Uh, You can also leave comments about either the film we're reviewing, our opinions of that film, or even make a suggestion for a film that you think should be in the top 100 films of all time. Of course, we, always, we love to hear positive feedback, but we appreciate any feedback that anyone has to say about any of our little shows. Now, with the horrible business out of the way, let's get on to our next review of my next pick for one of the greatest films of all time, 1989's Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner, Ray Liotta, and James Earl Jones. And I have a summary. Can you tell me a story? In Dyersville, Iowa, Ray Kinsella lives with his wife, Annie, and his young daughter, Karen. The trio live on a corn farm and lead a quiet life. Ray is haunted by his falling out with his father, John, years before, who ultimately died before Ray was able to make amends with him. John was a minor league baseball player who never made it to the majors, who also idolized the disgraced Chicago White Sox player, the infamous Shoeless Joe Jackson. 
One day, Ray is working in his cornfield when he hears a disembodied voice which whispers, if you build it, he will come. Ray sees a ghostly vision of a baseball diamond in the cornfield and Joe Jackson standing in the middle of the field. Ray concludes that he is supposed to build the field so that shoeless Joe Jackson can come back to life. The liberal Annie supports Ray's crazy notion and allows him to plow up their field, which severely cuts into their family's cash crop. As Ray builds the field, he tells his daughter about Shoeless Joe and the infamous 1919 Black Sox scandal. Ray explains that there was always a question as to whether Joe was involved in throwing the World Series with his teammates, since his offensive statistics argue against it. Over the course of several months, nothing happens on the field, and Ray and Annie are subjected to town ridicule. However, one night, the ghost of Shoeless Joe appears on the field. Joe asks if the field is heaven, and if he can bring others to play on Ray's field. Ray, Annie, and Karen can see Joe, and his fellow players. But Ray is surprised to find that Annie's brother, Mark, can't see any of the ghosts. Mark warns Annie and Ray that they are in danger of having their farm foreclosed, leaving them homeless. Not long after, Ray hears the mysterious voice again, which tells him to ease his pain. But once again, Ray does not know what the voice means. A few nights later, Ray and Annie attend a PTA meeting where some zealots advocate banning books that they consider to be controversial, including books by Terrence Mann. During the meeting, Ray concludes that the voice was referring to Mann. Ray discovers that Mann wrote a short story about baseball, where one of the characters was named John Kinsella, the same name as Ray's father. Ray also discovers an interview where Mann allegedly discusses his childhood dream of playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Ray proposes a plan to visit Mann, but Annie is opposed to it due to the family's financial crisis. However, when Ray and Annie realize that they have the same dream about Ray and Mann attending a baseball game at Fenway Park, Annie agrees to let Ray go. Ray finds Mann in Boston. Mann has become a recluse since writing his most influential works during the 1960s. Mann chooses to live in solitude and to write computer software. Ray kidnaps the writer and takes him to a Red Sox game. During the game, Ray hears the voice urging him to go the distance. He also sees statistics on the scoreboard for Archie Moonlight Graham, who played in one major league game for the New York Giants in 1922, but never gotten in at bat. Mann initially denies hearing the voice and seeing the stat, but later confesses to seeing both. Mann decides to join Ray as he drives to Minnesota to talk to Archie Graham. Once in Minnesota, Ray and Mann learn that Graham became the town's doctor after leaving baseball and had a highly influential effect on the town. Additionally, they learn that Graham died years before. Disappointed, Ray takes a walk through the town and suddenly finds himself in 1972. He encounters Doc Graham taking a walk along the street. Ray offers to take the elderly Dr. Graham back to his farm so that he can get his major league at bat. However, Dr. Graham de declines and states that he had a satisfying medical career. Ray and Mann leave Minnesota, and Mann decides to go with Ray back to Iowa to see the baseball field. Along the way, they pick up a hitchhiker, who is the young Archie Graham, prior to his baseball career. Mann and Ray decide to take the young Graham with them to the field. On the drive to Iowa, Ray reveals to Mann that his father loved baseball, and when he failed to make the majors, that he encouraged Ray to take up the game. Ray confesses that after reading one of Mann's books, that he stopped playing catch with his father and became disinterested in baseball. 
Ray tells Mann that he became estranged from his father after Ray said that he could never respect a man who had a hero who was a criminal, referring to Sheerless Joe. Ray confesses that he knew that Joe was not a criminal, but that he made the statement to hurt his father. Ray admits that his greatest regret is that his father died before he could ever make amends for his hurtful words. Mann tells Ray that the field and his encounters with Joe are his penance for hurting his father. When Ray, Mann, and Graham arrive at the farm, they are surprised to see that the field has two complete teams playing a full baseball game. Joe explains to Ray that they invited other former players, except for Ty Cobb, who none of them liked. Joe invites Graham to play with them. Graham finally gets his major league at bat and tips his cap to Ray for making his dream come true. The next day, Mark returns to the farm and demands that Ray sell the farm or that his bank will foreclose on him. Karen surprises everyone when she insists that people will come to watch the ghost game and will gladly pay to see it. Mann suddenly agrees and insists that people will come to relive their childhood innocence. Ray and Mark argue and scuffle, and Karen is knocked off the bleachers. She stops breathing, and the young Graham runs from the field and crosses a mysterious barrier. The young Graham becomes the elder Dr. Graham and quickly determines that Karen is choking and removes the blockage which is a bite of hot dog. Ray apologizes to Dr. Graham for him not being able to return to the game as his younger self, but Dr. Graham assures him that he has no regrets. After receiving a compliment from Joe, Dr. Graham walks into the cornfield and disappears. In the aftermath, Mark is suddenly able to see the ghosts and urges Ray to keep the farm. The ghosts decide to call it a day and begin to head back into the cornfield. Joe invites man to come with them. Ray becomes angry that he has not been invited, but Mann calms him by telling him that he did do the interview about baseball that he had previously denied doing. Mann also promises to write about his experiences in the cornfield when he returns. As Mann disappears, Joe smiles at Ray and states, if you build it, he will come. He then glances towards home plate where the catcher removes his mask, revealing himself to be Ray's younger father. Ray suddenly realizes that he has not been tasked with easing Joe's pain, but his father's. Additionally, Ray realizes that it has been Joe speaking to him the entire time. Ray introduces his family to his father without referring to him as his father. Ray and John talk, finally accomplishing the thing that they did not get a chance to do in life. As John begins to head into the cornfield, Ray calls out to him as dad and asks him if he wants to have a catch. John happily accepts, and in the distance, hundreds of cars are seen approaching the field, fulfilling Karen and Mann's promise that people will come. And that is Field of Dreams. All right. Films are influenced by the times they're made in, and Lori Flores is getting tired of covering 1989 because we've done it several times (laughs) in the last past few years. It's Uh, a good year for movies. It was a good year for movies, especially a good summer for movies. Uh, But uh, she talks about some of the big news events in Lori Flores' Headlines of the Time. Patrick said the year was 1989. Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini labels Salman Rushdie's book, The Satanic Verses, as sacrilegious and issued a fatwa sentencing him to death. Did I say that right? It sounds right. Say it? Okay, yeah. Just say it with confidence, right? <laughs> um, thousands of Chinese students took over Tiananmen Square 
in a Beijing pro-democracy protest. Thousands were killed by the brutal militant reaction of the Chinese government. Government leader Deng Xiaoping resigned shortly after the carnage. The Berlin Wall was opened after 28 years of border closure. U.S. troops invaded Panama to capture General Manuel Noriega. A 7.1 earthquake hit the San Francisco Bay Area, killing 67 and injuring over 3,000. And that was the World Series quake, right? Yes. Yeah. Baseball. George Herbert Walker Bush was inaugurated as the 41st president of the United States. And in the year 1989, stars Lucille Ball, Jim Backus, Betty Davis, and Laurence Olivier passed away. Films released in 1989 included Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, License to Kill, Batman, Born on the Fourth of July, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, Major League, and tonight's film that we're going to discuss, Field of Dreams. And that's a look at the year 1989. All right. We usually start by talking about the casting in the film, and the lead in this is undoubtedly uh, Kevin Costner playing Ray Kinsella. Uh, Bobby, what did you think of Costner doing, at this point in time, his second baseball film in a row? Well, I was just going to say that is this isn't his first, but he did a really good job. And this isn't really as much a baseball movie for Costner as it is the, the theme, because Bull Durham, he played the catcher, and he was amazing as a ball player. In this one, he's basically just a farmer that throws a ball for Joe Jackson to hit out into the left field. Uh, so that was that was a really neat idea, and I think he's awesome. I I really do. I I'm sure there could have been other actors that could have played it, but knowing that Costner, this was probably one of his best early roles, where he kind of acted as a grown up instead of a grown up child, like he was in a couple of the other earlier roles of his. I, I think this was a good role for him. I also like the fact that uh, just. Was it last summer or two summers ago when they had the very first Field of Dreams game? Yeah, uh, after the was pandemic. It yeah, uh, yeah. It was the fact that he actually came out of the the cornfield and or, or out of the corn and into the into the field, followed by the White Sox and Yankees. So that was really a, that was a neat experience for him to actually enjoy coming back thirty plus years later and and being part of the legend of field of dreams i think this film when it came out established kevin costner as one of a lot of people's favorite actors a lot of my friends really followed him his career especially after this film um i think he's just so natural in the role and so perfect as ray that it's hard for me to imagine anybody else in the role i just think he he was so subtle and and, and so perfect and made Ray so relatable and so likable. And, and Kevin Costner, I, I really like him. I think he's made a lot of, of really good career choices. Nobody's perfect. Waterworld, but, but um, Waterworld's not a bad movie. Waterworld's not a bad movie. <laughs> I didn't. Well, okay. But I, he's one of my, he's, he's in a lot of 
films that are some of my favorites. So I really, I really like Kevin Costner. You, you know, uh, Kevin Costner, especially around this time frame, was one of my favorite actors. I, you know, I he first caught my attention with Silverado, uh, a western that I still think is a, a one of the unappreciated gems of the 1980s. And then I kept following his career with like American Flyers and Fandango, uh, Untouchables and No Way Out, which came out really close to each other in time. But I really, really, really enjoyed those films. And then uh, obviously Bull Durham, which is one of my favorite baseball movies. I really appreciate the fact that he didn't do, uh, you know, kind of a Hollywood math of I just did a baseball movie. I don't want to do another one uh, because I, I think he is perfectly cast for this particular role. I agree. Other people could have done it, but he has that kind of aw shucks down home mentality that he, he just fit the role really, really well. And. And I'll agree with Bobby. This isn't so much a baseball movie as Bull Durham was a baseball movie. You know, this is more of a, a father-son movie that has a subtext of baseball, and and that's the connecting point between the characters. But you don't really need to know much about baseball to uh, to really appreciate the the story of this particular film. And I think he does a great job with it. Uh, what about Lori Ray Liotta playing Shoeless Joe Jackson? I'm so sorry he just passed away. That made me really sad. I I am a huge fan of Ray Liotta because of this film first put him on my radar. And then I really love Dominic and Eugene. That's one of my all-time favorite movies. Wow, that's a deep cut. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I just thought he, again, he just, I believed he was Shoeless Joe Jackson. He just had this aura about him. It just... I don't know. He just, I believed he was this legendary baseball player and I could, I could just feel his, his love for the game and, and, and how much he missed it. And I just thought, I just thought he was again, perfectly cast. And I just, I have to say again, I love Ray Liotta and I'm really sad that he passed away. Well, I really love Ray Liotta too, and I'm sad that he passed away also. But I got to say, he this was not the movie that I would say was his best role. I think the fact that he was miscast uh, for the actual Joe Jackson character, he's a right-handed batter when Joe was left. <laughs> uh, Ray Liotta had a Bronx accent when Joe was from the Midwest, and I so and that he had a bit of a the New York. I don't know, wise guy uh, response like he does in Casino, or, or I'm sorry, uh, Goodfellas, but whereas Joe was illiterate, uh, the the real Joe Jackson. So I think that was a little bit of a, a miscast, but I thought he did really good in the role uh, with all of that said. I think he was, he's, he's charming. He's beautiful to look at. He played, you know, he played baseball well. It's just it, from a purist standpoint, he wasn't the perfect Joe Jackson, but I thought he did a good job. And I think that, that he made the, the movie go from point A to point Z. And I think that's all you can ask from him. You know, he will always be Henry Hill. <laughs> for me from Goodfellas. I mean, I think that is his quintessential role. And it is hard to see him play this because it's a little bit 
subdued for him most of it every once in a while he kind of cracks you know when he makes a joke about you know ty cobb that that seems to be like ah, hey, that's the guy from goodfellas there i can see it he's, he's coming through uh, i i do i you know i i am not so versed in baseball that i knew that you know the shoeless joe was actually left-handed and didn't bat right like ray Liotta. You know, or where he came from. Same here. Yeah, it's. I mean, those to me, that's picking nits. But it was it was a common uh, criticism. I think there was the same criticism of the actors in Eight Men Out. They they criticized the actors for not batting the right or throwing the right way, his for the, as compared to the historical characters. But I, I think he does a good job. He's. I, I don't think he's the best performance in it, but he does a serviceable job to get you know, to keep things moving. I, I think they could have gotten better actors. Uh, sir, I, I didn't think he was that great in baseball. I, you know, obviously Kevin Costner played baseball, so he just had more natural skill, but I, I like him in the role, but they could have, they could have gotten someone potentially better, but I, I, I don't think he ruins the film by any stretch of the imagination. I'll agree. But, and also I will say that between the movies, if you have the same character playing eight men out, which is DB Sweeney playing it, DB Sweeney uh, learned how to switch hit and played the Joe character dead on that. He was exactly what Joe, uh, Joe Jackson was supposed to be like. So if you're going to nitpick or if I'm nitpicking, sorry, not you guys, <laughs> but, uh, or toe pick <laughs> or toe pick. Yeah, there you go. Um, DB Sweeney was the, the quintessential Joe Jackson, but yes, uh, Ray did a, a serviceable job. All right. What about James Earl Jones playing Terrence Mann? Bobby, what did you think of, uh, our Darth Vader playing, uh, <laughs> a famous, uh, recluse writer? You like films about recluse writers. <laughs> Uh, very much, but Terrence Mann was. I question it though. I I had forgotten that he was writing computer programs. Was he like the father of sabermetics in 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 I baseball? No, I have no idea. The inspiration for Moneyball. Moneyball. Yeah. I know yeah. Where but I really, really loved. I mean, we all do love James Earl Jones. What was funny to me was this was his second baseball movie. This wasn't even his third uh, that he played. Um, he was in the um, traveling. What was it? Bingo Long and the Traveling All Stars or something along those lines, back in the the seventies uh, with Richard Pryor and uh, uh, Billy D. Williams. Yeah. So that was – and then he plays in this film, and then he also plays in The Sandlot as the old blind guy. And I just thought the fact that he doesn't even love baseball makes me laugh because he's so perfect for it. And having that voice, he's just – I know he's a writer in the film based on the J.D. Salinger character, but he's really good. And I, I just enjoyed the fact that he played the role like somebody who was a recluse, was upset that somebody had, had busted into his life, and then he just was in awe of the magic that was pulling him in the direction of the field of dreams. So I really loved it. I Honestly, there, maybe there are other actors that could have done it. I love the fact that he was the one that was playing the character, though. I love James Earl Jones. And I, I just think he's magnetic on the screen. I just can't take my eyes off him. And even though he's James Earl Jones, he's Darth Vader, he has that voice that he can't shake. He melts into a role. He melts into a character. And I believe that he was Terrence Mann. And I eventually forgot that I was watching 
James Earl Jones. So I, I mean, that's the highest compliment that I can give, even with that voice that he, that I can get lost into his characters. So another one of my favorites. You know, it's, I I love James Earl Jones as an actor. He's not an actor that to me is ever really typecast in anything. So I think he has a lot of versatility to it because I've seen him do a lot of different roles. I mean, the most, most I think I think of typecasting would be Admiral Greer in the John Clancy movies, the early ones uh, around the same time as this. But I, I, his like the epitome of this film and one of the best acting scenes is his, you know, his dialogue at the end of the film about people will come, you know, and I really like that delivery. And I thought he did it pitch perfect. I know a lot of people don't because they think he gets over sentimental, but I think that that is, you know, one of the true messages of the film and one of the hooks of this film is, you know, just talking about what people are so willing to uh, want to desire about just the the, to return to innocence and and that they're willing to pay whatever it takes, you know, to get there. And, and I think there's some truth in that, even not just in this, you know, in the story of go, ghost baseball players coming back, but that people in real life so desperately want to return to a simpler time and to have that kind of the restoration of their own innocence that they'll pay and do whatever they do, uh, whatever amount it takes to do that. And, and I think that was, it's kind of an interesting message. And I really liked that scene, but I thought he was good in the film and I thought he had great chemistry, uh, with Kevin Costner. I'm, I'm disappointed that they didn't do more films together. Can we mention Amy Madigan? If you want to. (laughs) I really want to. Okay. (laughs) Because this performance was so memorable to me that I've never forgotten it. And every time that I see her in something, I followed her career because of this performance. I don't think I would want to see anybody else in this role. I just think she was so perfect. She had this energy. And I've always remembered the scene at the school board meeting or PTA meeting, whatever it was. And the way she was like... so excited walking out of it, like box, you know, doing a, a boxing jab. I just remember that. And it's, it's stuck in my head and I don't know why, but that's one of my all time favorite scenes in a movie. And I just love her character. I love what she brought to the character. I just absolutely love Annie. She's one of my all time favorite characters. And it's, and I think it's, obviously the writing but i also think it's amy madigan so i just had to mention that and i never like what's his name timothy buzzbell yeah. never like him when i first see him on screen and i know it's because of this movie <laughs> that even though he's redeemed i just i just he made me so angry in this film well I, I really love Amy Madigan as well. Uh, I from Streets of Fire forward, she I've been a fan of hers. But what I will say is, it, it kind of she was a little off putting to me in this role, because I I, I don't she, I, she's playing a lot younger than she actually is, and I thought that it was it was kind of strange. Even the very first time I saw this film, and I've seen this film. 30 times I'm not kidding way too many times but what I, I but I just read the book Shoeless Joe by WP Kinsella and his Annie in the book 
is not Amy, Mad- Amy Madigan. And I think that's probably why it never rang so true to me. Um, even though I just read the book, the the Annie character in there, Lori, if you love the Amy Madigan, the way she plays it, you would adore the the book Annie. Um, she's amazing. She's exactly the she's the the perfect woman, and it's it's really well done. So, and then as far as the Timothy Busfield character, the Mark character is way worse in the book. So, just so you know, but uh, again, I I like Amy Madigan. I thought she was all right, but this literally should have been somebody probably about another five to eight years younger would have been a better choice for the role. Well, a better match for Costner than somebody that was eight years younger. No, I think that's the thing. Costner, I think, was seemed younger to me than Amy Madigan was, yeah. and I think it should oh. it, because in the book they had Amy, they had Annie as a twenty-five-year-old who looked like she was sixteen, and Amy Madigan looked like a forty-year-old playing a thirty-year-old, and it just didn't. Oh, didn't I didn't seem think to go so. Well. I thought she looked young. Yeah. I thought she was younger than him. Okay, but then that was so off-putting when he said, I'm 36, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're so young. <laughs> well, yes, now, but when this movie came out, Lori, you were 18. I know. <laughs> I know. How did I get here? So, um, If this film has a weakness, it's Amy Madigan. In my, no. My, no, I, I, I am off-put by her. Her character annoys me. I find her the least believable of all the characters. She buys into Ray's fantasy far too easily and far too hippie-ish for me uh, for the for the film that I, I really just don't I don't like the, her characterization and I don't think it's her. I think it's the way the character is written. Um, so I, that's that's my one weakness. But I also don't think too much hinges on her. It's it's not ultimately her story. It's Ray's story. It's Ray and his father's story, and and that's why I, I don't like fault the film. Is that 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 you know like the Timothy Busfield character? We'll discuss him in a few minutes, but is is kind of innocuous to me. I don't I don't find him as a you know mustache mustache twirling villain at all. Um, you know, it's more of just the what is Ray's belief and his willingness to just buy into the fantasy uh, and that's what i think is the true you know question in the film not selling the farm or not but i don't really care for amy madigan's portrayal in the film and i don't dislike amy madigan i just don't like her in this film agreed disagree okay you can that's why when you said can we talk about it sure if you want to i was told if you had nothing nice to say then don't say anything at all but you want to talk about her so we'll bring her when have you ever listened to your mom why start now (laughs) All right, Bobby, what about symbolism and hidden meanings? I have that the references to heaven are symbolized throughout where heaven means different things to different people. The comment from Shoeless Joe asking if this is heaven shows that he and the other White Sox believe heaven should include a baseball field. Doc Graham believes wishes come true, but his heaven is home with his wife, and Ray's heaven is playing catch with his father. I have Terrence Mann's book, which was based – again, Terrence Mann was based on J.D. Salinger, who wrote Catcher in the Rye. Terrence Mann's book symbol or uh, mirrors the same thing, where he's, it, it was symbolized a turning point in Ray's life where he wanted a new beginning from his father's stifling ways, which Ray in turn offers the reclusive Terrence by inviting him to the baseball field where Terrence has a new beginning to his long dormant writing career. 
And then Ray destroying his corn crop to build the baseball field baffled his Iowa neighbors where the soil symbolized success and financial stability. Plowing it under was inconceivable. And when I personally visited the actual Field of Dreams site in Dyersville, Iowa, the left field neighbors actually sold small vials of the left field dirt for money to make ends meet since they couldn't farm the left field driving the symbolism home. So it was a dollar a vial wow. back in 1991. <laughs> <laughs> Lori, any comments on those? No, but that's on my bucket list. I want to go there. It looks a lot different than in 1991, let me tell you. How so? Well, looking at the Field of Dreams game in 2020, was it 2020 or 2021? I 2021. think it was 2021. Um, seeing it, what is that, uh, 30 years later from when I when I was there, uh, it when I was there, it looked like the field that you saw. Only it was much rougher because they were they were watering it like normal and stuff, and the neighbors couldn't uh, mow the the left left field was owned by a different farmer. The, ultimately, they did sell it to to the Field of Dreams, but it, it was it was much rougher when we were there. We got to play on the field. And I actually hit the ball right back at the pitcher, just like in the movie. So that was really fun. That was my one hit. <laughs> but uh, it, it was just people, just a pickup game. Whoever showed up, they just had kind of a, a rotating, you know, you just That's take a position. Fun. It was. It was just neat. Uh, you know, kids were just out there just playing. You know, they they pick just go out and run out into right field or whatever and just wait for a ball to come out. So that was fun. And walking out into left field itself, I'm telling you when I, I was there with two friends, I was driving him back to Chicago and all three of us, when we walked out there to left field, it was, a, it, we had the, the willies. I mean, it was weird when you wanted to put your hand into that left field. It, we had that in the back of our head. So, but it was, it looked exactly like it did in the movie. The grandstand still has the, the little carved out uh, Ray Loves Annie. It, it, it was neat. One of my great experiences when I drove around the States. All right. That was, How was it different when you watched it on baseball? I mean, obviously. There it is so refined now. It is, it's a true tourist, tourist attraction today. Even in 91, it was a tourist attraction kind of where they had the, the little souvenir shop selling. But like I said, the neighbors were selling dollar vials of dirt. Today, that vial would probably go for 50 bucks. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's way more high class. And Major League Baseball built a stadium literally adjacent to that cornfield, a real Major League stadium. I mean, it's miniaturized, but it's still a real place. So it's, it is way more maintained. Um, it's almost like a Hollywood production today versus what it was like when I was there. Yeah. Back when it was a Hollywood production. <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing is, you know, you uh, uh, folks out there that uh, have seen, I mean, you you know, uh, old Tucson. I mean, all these movie sets you, that people come in, they make these place, places look like, you know, the Taj Mahal for the movie and then literally pack up and move away and everything just kind of falls down around and it just becomes old hat, you know, nothing special. The water, the, the grass isn't green anymore. It's brown in spots and, you know, uh, dirt that gets kicked up or make a hole, it stays as a hole, you know, stuff like that. That's, that's what the field looked like back then today. It it's perfect. 
Matt's moral universe. All right, Matt's not here, so I'm going to take a, a wild swing at this. And uh, and I mentioned the Tim- Timothy Busfield character that obviously in the film he's kind of portrayed as the villain, but he's not really that villainous. He just doesn't have an understanding that the other characters have. He's trying to help his sister. You know, he sees what he sees is a, a guy. It who appears to be insane talking, building a baseball field in his cornfield and sitting out there and watching an empty field from all the, all the time. But he's trying to ultimately to, to do good by them. And once he has his epiphany, then he jumps on board with the, what they're saying is you, know, you can't sell the farm. You can't sell the farm. What do you, I mean, the morality of that and the way that they kind of portray him. And you said he's much more vile in the book which I have not read. So I'm kind of curious what the differences are, Bobby. So if you could share that one, we'll come to you. But this idea that he's just trying to help them and he, he really is trying to help them. They can for foreclose and give them nothing. And they're saying, sell the farm and you can keep the house and continue to live there. You know, banks don't do that. <laughs> they really, really don't. That's a, a, a true favor. And I think, you know, honestly, I think he's potentially being one of the most moral characters in the film because he's trying to do something to help other people out. He just doesn't understand their reasoning. Lori, what are your thoughts? I didn't like him. (laughs) I understand. I just, (laughs) and I don't know, you know, I was 18 when this, when I first saw this, what did I know? Yeah. You hated 30 something and you know, it was years before she hadn't seen him in revenge of the nerds yet. (laughs) I had, right. That was earlier. Yeah. That was much earlier. Also filmed at the U of A. Yes. What do you mean? Also (laughs) filmed at the U of A. Well, I didn't mean also. I just meant we had mentioned old Tucson, so oh, okay. another Tucson connection. Like, Not really. It was, it was... wasn't at the UFA. <laughs> I know. Okay, okay. I misspoke. It just we were talking Tucson, so okay. But I that I like I told you, I when I see him in something else because of this movie, he left such a a bad impression. He was so good as that character, and. I don't. I don't know. You're Patrick. You're absolutely right. You're being reasonable, but this, I was young. Damn straight. That's right. And it I'm stuck never... with me. <laughs> then I didn't like him because he was a dream crusher. But I mean, you're right. He was sensible, but but sometimes is the sensible thing. I mean, he got a little violent when he knocked the girl off the bleachers. Sometimes the sensible thing isn't always. Well, <laughs> his grip slipped. Well, his grip slipped, but he didn't. I mean, he, his intent was not to knock her off the bleachers. It's Ray going up there and getting into the struggle with them that knocked. She her. was an example. Yeah, she was the example. Your kids turning into a space cadet, and my, my and and Ray grabs a hold of her, and both of them lose their grip. She was just a prop. So that they were fighting over it. They did. They, neither one of them intended hurt or or pain on the child at all. Right. Obviously, I mean, he's he's he is a loving uncle. I. Lost my, I'm very, you know, I'm older now and much more cynical, but I'm not, I'm not losing that ideal of this movie. (laughs) I'm holding on to it. Okay, Bobby. Well, I will say that the book, there's a lot of changes in the movie um, from the book. Uh, For one thing, Ray is a twin and they they make a big deal about his his brother disappearing and then he shows back up later on in the book. And they're identical, literally everything's the same except for one scar. They shortchanged the 
uh, Annie's family because they're much more um, fleshed out in the book. The mom is a very, very, very pious religious woman that basically Ray will never measure up uh, no matter how hard he tries. But the Timothy Busfield character, the Mark, he has a business partner and they are wicked. Their intention is – uh, come to find out he's being the in in the movie he's way more watered down because in the movie it's hey me and my partners you know we'll we're going to take care of my sister you know we don't want to foreclose but you know just we just want to make sure she's safe in the book he and his partners are in this conglomeration that are in that have literally bought up half the county in Iowa and they're just intending on doing computer farming and just knock down all the farmhouses, all the barns, and just just basically have machines running for the whole half of the county to do all the farming without anybody doing it. It's just machine after machine. And that and their property was the only one that hadn't sold yet. So the pressure I knew was huge. It. Yeah. I knew it. And and on top of it, Mark was upside or the Timothy Busfield character was upside down. He was in debt and he had to close on this or else. So it was a big deal. So in this one, it was much less uh, I mean, he's he's much more brotherly love in the film than he is in the book. Yeah. So that there's that too. <laughs> yeah, and, and I suspected that that was probably when you said that he was a much more despicable character in the book. Yeah, that, he's not a nice guy. That subplot of, you know, everything yeah. in this business hinges on getting all the property. That that seems to be a common trope. And I, I'm glad they, to include that in the film because that's enough. It's yes. unnecessary. No, and he his partner actually showed up with a sledgehammer or an axe, excuse me, showed up with an axe at the final confrontation to bust up the entire field. And in the move or in the book, um, there isn't an entire baseball field. It is just left field and they're seeing shadows. They're not, they're not seeing, um, nine on a side, all stars against the Chicago white Sox thing. They're just seeing shoeless Joe and the other, the other, uh, seven white Sox. Everybody else is a shadow playing a game that you don't even get to see so it's it's really kind of a, a it's a baffling way of looking at it from the book's perspective hmm. so the i think the movie is better for it but they did shortchange the timothy busfield character uh, or, or the annie's family i will also say as far as your moral universe is concerned the book burning in the in the movie is not in the book and i think that is a moral dilemma that they had that they brought up that I thought was good that they brought it up the way they did in the movie because it was actually around the same time as Footloose so that that happened uh, you know people and even today people are still talking about burning books so that's something that is morally corrupt <laughs> in a way too so I, I would say that would be something I would bring up too yeah well and and very similar to Footloose is the the kind of the the small a Midwest farmer town, you know, holier than thou. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, th th although I think in this film that th it is kind of, they're not trying to send a message. They're just trying to make a connection to Terrence Mann as quickly as possible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that was their way of doing it. They burn the books of Terrence Mann. Hey, wait, I think I'm trying to ease his pain. That sounds like a good idea. Cause I What's just heard, just heard those is... words. <laughs> Well, what is interesting, though, is the Catcher in the Rye was banned. Yes. Uh, and 
So that the fact that they they mentioned that is mentioned in the book, but it isn't a full blown PTA meeting with all the parents. Uh, what about the music, Bobby? Uh, music composed by James Horner, Academy Award nominated soundtrack. Ultimately, unfortunately, did not win. What did you think of the soundtrack? I thought it was perfect for the film. I don't know that it was Oscar worthy as far as winning is concerned, but I really loved the soundtrack. I thought it was it, it soared. It was it, I mean, the natural is the ultimate baseball soundtrack, but I think this held its ground in, on that kind of hallowed ground. So I I really really enjoyed it. I to be honest, I'm not good at these kinds of questions for music, but I would listen to this again anytime and anytime this this soundtrack comes on especially when he's you know he's going to be going out and playing catch with his dad and stuff those are things that just they they catch me right i loved it i love the music horner is one of my favorite composers i mean for me he's up there with um john williams it but that was a tough year so he did get his oscars for titanic so that makes me happy but that was a tough year and I think Little Mermaid won. Is that no. right? Uh, no, sorry. Yes, you're right. Little uh, Alan Menken won for. The yeah, Mermaid. that that was great. That I, I I do agree with that winning. But yeah, I I, I love the music and like Bobby said, I thought it it fit the film perfectly. Yeah, it's it's not a soundtrack. And I was thinking, I think I have that soundtrack. And then I went back and looked, and I don't. It's it's a quiet soundtrack. It's not bombastic up until the the kind of the sweeping uh, music at the very end where Ray's finally playing catch with his father. That's about the only time that you get really kind of loud bombastic music. It, usually, it's very subtle. I I like it a lot. I was surprised I didn't own it because I've always really liked this film a lot and I know the music very well. Uh, but I think it's just because I've seen Bobby said, seen this film like 30 times. I worked in the theater when this film came out. So uh, I've seen it uh, even uh, the end. I probably have seen the end a couple hundred times, you know, and just because I was always clean in the theater and it played forever at our theater the entire summer of 1989 it just kept going and going it just it, even when all the big summer movies came out it just kept get, staying in one of our small theaters and i would you know waiting for the end uh, to, to clean the theater i'd watch the last five ten minutes of it uh, which is my favorite part of the film and it's it, you know and i really like that music um the the music during the credits is not really really that exciting <laughs> when you're cleaning the theater but i really like the music and it's probably one of my earliest recollections of a james horner soundtrack that i i too like him i would not blaspheme and say he's up there with john williams no, no one is up there with john williams in my perspective but he is one of the the greatest in our lifetimes all right ending of the film laurie what did you think of the ending of the film i loved it and i I don't remember bawling as hard as I did watching it this time. I gave myself a headache. I was crying so hard, a sinus headache. I think now that I'm older, it really hit me more of just how time passes. So, Okay. Bobby? I loved this ending, and I think this is exactly the ending that we needed to have for this film. And comparing it to the book, this 
the movie kicks the book's ass because in in the book they uh, they refer back to Ray and Richard as the twin brothers but they they refer back to my catcher and i'm looking at my i keep watching my catcher and ultimately they finally he introduces ray introduces their catcher which is obviously the dad to rick uh, to richard and that's when richard finally gets to see that the field has people uh, has actual players but it was a it was it was like less than a paragraph and actually it was like three sentences and that was it and they just moved on to the next thing in the movie that's the whole point and we find out that if you build it, he will come is not Joe. It's not shoeless Joe. It is his father. And that's the whole point. And, and whereas the book is the opposite. It's about shoeless Joe showing up. So I thought that was really, really well done. And I, I, don't, I think had they have done any other option, I think they would have messed it up. I think this was perfect. I, I, th- I think the strength of the film is the ending the misdirect that you use the ease is pain and uh if you build it he will come that you're in it's implied through the entirety of the film that it's shoeless joe that uh, ray is doing this for and you know terrence mann in the in the van ride back saying this is your penance to your father to basically ease shoeless joe's pain you know uh, it's hard for me and you know 30 something years later to separate myself from my first time seeing it. Cause I think now that it's, to me, it seems so obvious that it's got to be Ray's father, that that's whose pain is supposed to be eased because he talks about it. That's how the film opens. He talks about in the middle that it is, it seems so obvious to me. Uh, I'm curious. I I was going to watch this with my son and unfortunately I had, I had to get it watched uh, quickly and I didn't have an opportunity to sit down with him to watch it. But I kind of wanted to watch it with him to see because he's kind of my barometer for storylines or to obvious things because he's pretty astute and starts picking things up. And I was wondering, I want, I want to see his reaction. So I, someday I plan on watching it with him. It is, Lori. It's weird that you mentioned that because I, as I said, I saw this in the theater, and I do not. I, I, I watch this. You know. Uh, we were going to review this a couple of weeks ago and I watched it the day we were supposed to, before we were supposed to review it. And as the movie was uh, finishing, uh, I was sitting in the chair crying <laughs> and my wife asked me, what's wrong? I said, the movie's sad, you know, and she's like, God, you're such a baby. <laughs> so, but I know I didn't cry in 1989 when I saw it in the theater, I didn't cry. I think it's a film that, especially as I've grown older and become a father myself, that mm-hmm. it, it takes on a completely different d- different yes. feeling and resonance to me uh, than back then, and you know, and back then, and especially in like the summer of '89, uh, you know, I, I I was 17 and constantly possibly fighting with my father over just various different things, or just you know, bickering over little things, and I do remember specifically taking him to see Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade, and I know I've referenced this in the pre- our prior podcast when I nominated that for one of the top films of all time as a father and son film. And this came out just a few weeks before that. I know I never saw, I'd never, I know I never took him to see this movie, but, and I don't think I've ever watched it with him to my recollection, but it is a film that really, I think that that last five, 10 minutes is just every time, 
every time it gets me anymore. Like I am, mm-hmm. I it just, I'm bawling my eyes out. It, 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 you know, the, the two lines that get me are, Oh my God, it's my, it's my father, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and then when he says, Hey dad, do you want to have a catch? And that just, mm-hmm. goes to <laughs> and which, which is weird that they were, that was a last minute addition. Like, like, Oh my God, that, that line had to be there for me so much. He, they looped it, it in. Yeah. He, he didn't, he didn't say it at the, at the time they looped it in. Yeah. Because it, they didn't reference, he didn't reference him to, as his father to his family and mm-hmm. the audiences hated that. You know, that they felt that that was kind of a dickish thing to do. But when he f- acknowledges that he's his father and asks for the catch, like, oh, my God. Yeah, that's just like that makes all the difference in that that entire scene to me. So I lost it. I, I will say that I, I coached my kids from birth up and up, up pretty much almost through high school in baseball and softball. And my daughter became a, she was the starting pitcher on her varsity team in, in high school. And. When she graduated, it broke my heart because obviously I'm never going to get to see my kids play again uh, because they they didn't want to go on to college. And when my daughter, a couple of years after she graduated, she just called me out of the blue and she said, hey, dad, you, you know, I'd like to pitch again to you today. And I was like, absolutely. Right now. Yes. I said, show up, you know, come on by. And we have a garage door that she used to pitch at. If, if I was there catching her or if I, there were twice that, that I wasn't there and it's just covered in softball holes, you know, or dents. And, uh, and she just came out and she just pitched to me and I, and I, and I, I basically I'm about ready to cry now, but, uh, it was like it was the Ray Kinsella, the Ray Kinsella moment of pitching with your child. Can I just play catch? I just want to play catch with my child one more time, and that was that just made my day. It made my life is watching my child pitch to me and love the fact she wanted to pitch to me. And so these these are real motion, uh, emotions, and the older you get where we become parents and our children grow up, you start to feel that moment of, you know, that youth is gone, but yet if we can still have it just for one more split second, Mm -hmm. that's all that I need. And, and that's, so I, I got to experience that in real life. So as far as I'm concerned, this movie could not have ended better. Yeah. And once again, circling back to, that wanting to go back to that innocence of that moment and mm-hmm. that that's Ray's jump back to that moment, that that childhood moment of just playing catch with his father is that it, all the people that are coming momentarily a few seconds later, pulling up his driveway, just wanting to watch the game. That's that's his, you know, child, his his point of innocence where he, you know, he he returns to. So, well, and that's the thing that was really good about the film was that. Earlier in the movie, Ray does reference that. He's like, you know, all my dad wanted to do was play catch and I wouldn't do it with him. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end, that's what he wanted to do. And I I relate it back to someday I won't be here and my daughter will remember that she got to pitch to me once more. And that's all that matters. So those are the kinds of moments that we just we, we forget until we don't have them anymore. All right. You're making Lori cry. Stop. Stop for a second. Sorry. 
All right, film's legacy. Nominated for three Academy Awards, winning zero. Lost Best Picture to Driving Miss Daisy. Lost Best Music, Original Score. As we previously said, James Horner lost to Alan Menken for The Little Mermaid. And Lost Best Adapted Screenplay, screenplay to, once again, Driving Miss Daisy. Uh, AFI, it w- in 1998, it was nominated for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies list. Ultimately did not make the top 100. On the 10th anniversary edition of that same list, was nominated again. Still did not make the list. Uh, it was uh, it actually made the list on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes, uh, specifically at number 39 for If You Build It, He Will Come. It was nominated for 100 Years of Film school Scores list. Uh, did not make the top 100. Uh, 100 Years, 100 Cheers list, uh, number 28 uh, on that list. And then AFI's 10 top 10 lists, it was number six on a fantasy film, which I guess theoretically it is, although I don't tend to think of it as that. In contradiction to that, the movie was named as one of the 20 most overrated movies of all time by Premiere Magazine. Uh, it was placed in the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress in 2017. And in August 2021, it was announced the film was being remade as a television series for Peacock to be uh, written by Mike Schur, who is most famous for being one of the writers and uh, ultimately, ultimately producers for The Office and Parks and Recreation. Also did The Good Place. Uh, as of June uh, 2022, a month before we recorded this, uh, it was no longer going to move forward at Peacock and it was being shopped around for another streaming service to air it. And then Rotten Tomatoes has it at 88% critics and 86% audience. And so that is the numbers on Field of Dreams. What do you guys think of the legacy and would you put it in your top 100? Lori? I think the legacy is appropriate and yes, it's in my top 100. Lori, you are running out of space. In fact, you've got to be over 100 by now. I, I, no. <laughs> so. Lori gets 150 when we get 100. <laughs> She gets a special consideration like uh, Elaine, Elaine does in Seinfeld for the contest. Is that what we're doing? <laughs> <laughs> she still put it the same hundred bucks, though. No, she had to put it 150. Elaine did. Oh, that's right. You're right. Yes. <laughs> All right, Bobby. What about you? Uh, I, I don't think that, that the legacy is, is appropriate, actually, because this is not a movie that is a normal movie. This is a sports film. And if you were to rate it amongst other sports films, this movie is always, always in the top 10. Regardless of sport, it's always in everybody's top 10. And in baseball films, it is always in the top five. So, yes, as a film, maybe it might not fit into everybody's box all the time. But if you're looking for a fantasy baseball film that will that will leave you crying at the end, like all three of us have said, <laughs> um, that in a good way and where you just feel good. Yes, the baseball is is secondary to the story, which makes it that much stronger, in my opinion. Um, I don't need to see Major League where Charlie Sheen is pitching as wild thing for the, the, the championship. That's irrelevant to this film. Reading the book, I will say that the, the adapted screenplay is superior to the book. Uh, even though the book is a good read, the movie is so much better. And, and having visited the field, amazing, uh, as a wonderful experience, major league baseball has built an actual stadium there so that, that games can be played there the fact that the the this Yankees White Sox game was the highest rated 
uh, daylight uh, Major League Baseball game in the last 15, 20 years tells you exactly how many people love this movie slash film or a uh, uh, location. So, yes, this is a great film. I will also have to – I want to give a shout-out to the 4K Ultra HD. It, the 30th anniversary edition is the, the one to rent slash buy. It, it is – it. The DVD or Blu-ray and below is inferior quality compared to the new uh, 4K. So within the last couple of years, they released this. And if you have the chance to watch it, watch it that way. It, it is way better than everything you've ever seen before, probably including but, in the theater. But, Bobby, what you said about the Field of Dreams game and stuff, that's why I think the legacy is appropriate because it's – on this, this for baseball yes it, it's appropriate for baseball lovers yes but as far as moviegoers i don't think that moviegoers give it enough credit and i think that's why i i, I think that it isn't enough um, see all my friends liked it i guess back back in 89 but the saying it's overrated that's inappropriate that's what i mean exactly yeah. I, I'm sorry, but there's bobby. always those haters when they're <laughs> bobby did you say you put it in your top 100 this is in my top 25. Okay. All right. All right, all right. I thought this was my film. I actually wrote a summary, gave it to Chris. Oh. I said, here, here it is. He goes, well, Patrick sent me one already. I was wondering if it was mine too. I was looking to see what it was. Well, that was mine. So, um, you know, I, I got to tell you a funny story that I, you know, I worked in the theater for a couple of years and the film that had the most walkouts, people walking out, early in the film disgusted saying, Hey, I can't watch this was wild at heart by David Lynch. Uh, and there was usually elderly people saying that's basically a porn, which it is not. The second one was this film. No, people, really? yes. People walked out of this film all the time and go, Oh, it's just so stupid. It makes no sense. And it within the first 20 minutes, half hour all the really? time. And I, and I, I never understood why people couldn't take that journey that what was so dis because there's nothing offensive about the film. It's just no. a little strange and, but there's a mystery and I, I was always captivated by the mystery. So I always find that really interesting about it. So I think that's where a lot of people say most overrated. I've heard people say that uh, Matt from uh, lunchtime movie review. I think years ago, uh, this, by the way, Oh, I forgot to put that in the stats. This also on lunchtime movie review in 2012 was on our reader poll or our listener poll, not reader, I guess. Listener poll was voted the best baseball movie of the 1980s. Um, and that's why we reviewed it for lunchtime movie review. So this is the second time I've reviewed the film. And I, and I believe at that time, Matt, uh, not Matt Palmer, Matt Long stated that the film was overrated. And I, I, I obviously don't feel that way. I nominated it as one of the greatest films of all time. I, I like Bobby. This is probably in my top 25. I, I've never really thought about where it would be at. It, I don't, it's in, definitely not in my top 10, but it's up there. I mean, it, it po pulls at the emotional heartstrings to me every single time, every single time. And it, the, the, the uh, the criticisms that many people have of this that's over overly sentimental i was like yeah so it's, it's a wonderful life and that's a great film you know and mm -hmm. there there's a place for films like that is yes it's very very sentimental it it it, it harkens to remind us of a, t a a past and a time that's gone by that's the point that's what it's trying to do that's what it's trying to emphasize and i like that 
I like that it's not dark and complicated. I like that there's not a, a huge financial discussion and component about this corporation trying to buy all the farms because that would take away from the magic that is this film. And that's why I really liked this, how they put this together. I mean, hearing you just talk about the book, Bobby, causes me not to read the book, want to read the book, because I don't think I would enjoy it nearly as much as this film, because I, I it, this film... It would take away from the magic. Exactly. It, it, it does. And I will say that I was actually, when I read the book, it made me angry because as a screenwriter myself, you know, a failed one, I've written too many screenplays that just never went anywhere. But it always it frustrated me when a really good source material, which this is a great source material book, by the way, and and James Earl Jones's his his final speech is in the book. But the the adapting of this book movie or of the book is where the money is. This is one of the rare ad adaptations where these where they absolutely took all the best pieces out of the book and made a great movie out of it. They got rid of the twin that you know dad became important, uh, you know, they they made a whole bunch of things positive about it and I think that that's it's that much richer for it. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say don't read the book. I would just say if you read the book Watch the movie first and then the book afterwards, which is usually how you try to flip it the other way around. So this is it, – it's really worth it. Okay. Book The movie's the best. I have to say real quick, Patrick, I worked at the same movie theater that Patrick did, but we missed each other. I think I probably quit right when you started Yeah, actually. Possibly. But um, the movie that was most walked out in my experience was the – was it called the Burbs? It was Tom a Tom oh, yeah. movie because people took <laughs> their kids to today. it, and then it had like a lot of language and stuff, and oh. they were like, "I thought this was a kids movie." Uh, I don't know about that. There's nothing about that that screamed kids movie to me. But no, I I I, I truly uh, love this film, and it's a film that was a slow burn. I liked it when it came out. I grew to love it over time. And it, it's still one that whenever it's on television, I, you know, I, I catch it for wherever I'm at to, to the end because the end is the payoff for me. Probably some of the, be the last 10 minutes of the film are probably the best 10 minutes of the entire film, but of, of, of some of the films ever made. I, I think that you've got the, the James Earl Jones speech and then you have the whole scene with Ray and his father that I just I mean, it just it just everything builds to that. And as I said, it to me now seems very obvious that it's building to that, but I'm wondering what other, you know, when somebody who's watching it with fresh eyes, doesn't know anything about it. If it's, it's, if the, that punch is being telegraphed as obvious as I think it is now, because I've seen it so many times, but. Uh, can, can I make one suggestion to you? Sure. What I would suggest is whether you do this regularly or not, I would, if I were you, I would take my son out back with a glove and I would just start to play catch just because, Hey, let's just go play catch for a little bit. Whether you do or not is it just, it's up to you guys. But as soon as you're done playing catch, then ask him, let's go watch a movie or, you know, within a week or two, uh, but have that catch so that it it's in his mind that I got to play catch with my dad. Yeah. No, that, it, you might get some real power out of that. No. I'm just saying yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. no, that, that not a bad suggestion. 
All right. Well, that does it for this month's review of Field of Dreams. Thanks again for joining us and listening to our little monthly podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. Uh, As we stated before, you can follow us on Pinterest or Twitter at MHMemories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. And don't forget to subscribe to our account on YouTube, uh, where we're now releasing our podcasts exclusively uh once there you can give us a like or a dislike if depending how you feel i'll leave a comment about our opinions the film we're reviewing or even a suggestion for a film that uh, you think should be in the top 100 of all time but at a minimum you should subscribe to our account and ring the notifications bell so you get updates on when we post new material on the uh, youtube channel Of course, we always like the uh, feedback that is positive, but we appreciate any feedback that we can get from any listeners of the show. Well, that does it for this review of Movie House Memories. Join us next month when it's actually Bobby's next pick. It's not mine. It's Bobby's. This was mine. (laughs) Bobby and Lori just tried to steal it from me, but this is... (laughs) And Bobby's choosing 1998's Pleasantville with Tobey Maguire and Reese Witherspoon. Uh, Until then, I'm Patrick. I'm going to go play catch with my kids. And I'm Lori. All right. And we'll see you all next time at our house. podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Movie House Memories, Hiding Your Reality, is provided courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHN Podcast Network, Movie House Memories, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.